Hello and welcome to another episode of the Glamshuary Podcast, where we talk about the experiential outdoor hospitality industry. I'm your host, Bobby Marston. I'm really excited for you to meet our guests on this episode, and their names are Mike and Ann Howard, or better known as Honey Trek. Mike and Ann have been on a honeymoon for the last 11 years. Some say that's the world's longest honeymoon. During that time, they've traveled almost everywhere, seen almost everything. They've been to places like Asia, Africa, South America, Antarctica, and during their travels around the globe, they've developed a love for glamping. In this podcast episode, we'll talk about their passion for glamping, we'll talk about a few books that they've written and published about glamping, and they offer some great insights about where travel has been and where they see it going. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hey, Mike. Hey, Anne. Thanks so much for joining the Glamshore podcast. Good to be here. Okay, first question. Where are you? We are in Bucharest, Romania. Just got here in uh, this beautiful little house. We've got two dogs. We're doing a two-week house sit, catching up on some work, doing some glamping consulting. Doing, uh, yeah, a big sort of journey around Eastern Europe for three months. And it's been go, go, go. I think we've been to six countries in the past six weeks, and now we're feeling and still for a moment in Romania and catch up and chat with you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Being true nomads, uh, obviously, this this is kind of par for the course. It is. The Prague to here it was like a 13-hour bus and, yeah, bouncing from Airbnb to Airbnb, but it's fun life. How did you end up where you are now? Were you invited to stay or was this a personal choice to say, you know what, of, of the million places that we've been, we haven't been here? Well, I was traveling with me when we left on this journey in 2012. We quickly realized you cannot be planning every day of an indefinite trip. So generally, we'll sort of have a sketch of the year to say, for example, we knew we were going to speak at a travel conference in Greece in May. We also were invited to a birthday ski trip in Bulgaria in March. And we're not one to waste a good transatlantic flight. So we sort of cobble these two disparate events together into a three-month Eastern European trip um, to explore and to also get a little work done and and um, just sort of get local for a while abroad. Well, that sounds awesome. I think a, a lot of people, including myself, are mm -hmm. jealous uh, right off the bat. But uh, obviously, you know, you weren't born uh, and woke up and then became travelers on day one. Um, you're married and congratulations on, I think it's almost 10 years. Yeah, 12 yeah. years of marriage. Coming up on yeah. Tour, yeah, 12 years of marriage, 11 years that we've been on the road full time. So kind of it was going to be a one year honeymoon that's now uh, turned into 11 years so far without a house. That's amazing. Well, what were your lives like before you met? Uh, were you big travelers? Was this something that was just been happening and you just naturally parlayed into the marriage? Or did this kind of come about after you guys got together and started wondering what could the future be? like? Well, we met in New York playing volleyball. And as New Yorkers who are just generally Americans with two week vacations, we're like, okay, what, how are we going to make the most of this little bit of time we have? So we, for our first like trip abroad, our first Valentine's, having only dated like five or six months, we're like, let's sneak into Cuba. And because this is like days when it was like Bush and, you know, you had to like inadvertently go through the Bahamas and get your visa, you know, torn up before, um, you know, returning to the States. So but it was still only a two week trip. Like, yeah, we it never was, did anything it was still more, like yeah. an adventurous trip. And we're like, that was fun. And that was, we kind of both had that love of adventure and, and um, flying by the seat of our pants. And that was sort of the first of many. And then the next trip we did, you know, Belize and got our scuba certification. And then 
you know, took our first hitchhike and, uh, you know, started to kind of get this taste for adventure travel. My dad uh, and mom lived in Tokyo for a number of years. My mom, with whatever money we had, we were going to definitely put it towards travel. And um, so it's in the genes and your family, big travelers as well. Big travelers, but we never like, we were, I think we were pretty normal in quotes. I think there, I mean, there's no real normal, but I think we were pretty standard travelers. Neither of us did a three month backpacking trip or had this dream of like someday we're going to travel the world permanently. I mean, everybody has that dream when they're 65, but usually it's like, okay, I'm going to work until I'm 65, then I'm going to travel the world. But we met a, we met a guy who had just got back from a 12 month trip with his girlfriend and he told us how much it costs, and it was under $100 a day for the two of them with their flights, hotels, food, scuba trips, like all, all 16 their countries. 16 countries, and under 100 bucks a day all in. And I was like, and we had just had this realization that, wow, we are never going to see all the places we want to in the world trying to do these 10-day trips, which are, which are different anyway. Like, they're more curated, and everything's planned down to the T, every museum, every cab ride, every hotel stay. So it's a different kind of travel. And when he, you know, we had this epiphany that we were like, okay, we're about to get married for a honeymoon. Let's just quit our jobs, put our stuff in storage, which it's still in the same storage unit in New York City right now. We've been paying for it for 11 years. Like shampoo and vitamins, like things <laughs> we should have, you know, done a bit more cutting. But it's because we went on this one year trip and we just fell even harder than we originally were, you know, in love with travel, with telling stories, with meeting locals. And one year turned to two, and then Honey Trek started getting a little momentum. People were calling it the world's longest honeymoon. We figured, hey, that's not a bad niche. If you got to pick a niche, world's longest honeymoon. Then we started doing a lot of glamping, working with glamping properties and manufacturers. So then that started to pay the bills. Um, and we just, yeah, we just loved telling stories. And that's here we are still doing it. I love that evolution. And you said something that's really interesting and in that you you planned a year. And was that plan based on, let's give this a shot and see how it goes because we have our jobs to return back to in our lives? Uh, what was the what was the reasoning for the year? Well, it just seemed unfathomable to, to go for longer. That was already wild and crazy going from two weeks to a year. I mean, this is also 2011 when we were planning this. So there weren't a lot of role models for this kind of thing. Now we're like digital nomad is like everybody, you know, everybody's doing it. And it it's a common concept, but especially within the, you know, the North American world, we didn't have a lot of people to go, so how does that work? And how, how much does it cost? And what shoes do I pack? And we had so many questions and then, you know, concerns as well. So we kind of treated it as this, like, maybe not get it out of our system, but like go, you know, we're celebrating this marriage and we'll like take off all the bucket list items. And then we, we actually really liked our jobs and our community and, and had a whole bunch of good things going for us. And like everyone else, no, then aren't you supposed to like, have kids and settle down. I mean, that's very ingrained into you. And so there didn't seem to be another option. And then, so, and we were okay with that. This was going to be a grand adventure, but then even just like within like three months on the road, we're like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> if we can keep this going, let's keep this going. And, um, you know, I was a writer anyway. I worked for magazines in New York. Mike actually ran a social network before that Zuckerberg guy. Like, you know, we had a background for this. We just didn't think about it that way. We just thought we had to go back to a desk. And, and we realized, wait a second, we have enough of a skills. And, you know, if we bootstrap it and we learn to kind of live more simply and not like have to be chasing that New York dollar, like maybe this is happiness and success. 
where were you when this epiphany happened? And and do you remember the moment and the conversation as to like, you know what? We need to take this risk. We need to take this step. If, I wouldn't say that there was any like one moment like over dinner, like, hey, this is amazing. Like, let's never go home. It, and it's still like an evolving thing. Like people always ask us, they always want to know like, wow, you've been on this trip now. It's like day 4,100 approximately today. And they're like, okay, when are you going to settle down? Like you must be settling down sometime. Or are you going to stay out forever? And we're like, hey, it's always evolving. We're always just taking in. We're seeing like what we want as a couple, what's fun to do. Um, we haven't had that itch yet to be like, okay, we found the perfect place. Like we want to settle down and build a glamping camp, even though we get that question a lot. Like, oh, do you guys own a camp somewhere? Like, when are you going to build one? Because we, we want to come. We almost bought a glamping camp. But we did uh, in Costa Rica, but that's a whole other story. Um, so there wasn't any one epiphany. It's just like, we just kind of, as we fell more in love with travel and storytelling, it became ever more obvious that like, wow, this is what we want to do and let's just do it and do it for another couple months or do it for another year, see where we are at that time. And now we're just, it's just second nature to us. Like when we sit still, even at this house, sit, we'll, we'll be here for about two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, we'll be like, okay, let's get back on the road. Let's get on that bus to Montenegro. Let's go to Albania. Like let's get out and meet people. and. And, do, and we actually might do something with a glamping camp in Serbia. Like, let's let's do some, you know, let's get back out there and tell stories and, and meet people. So it's just become like, not really, well, I doesn't like when I say an addiction, but like. No, but it's, it's this like, ongoing education, right? So it's that we're constantly learning and that it's always, you're always in a new environment. So you're kind of always absorbing it on your toes and um, the, that is fulfilling. So the adventure, the education, the people you meet, our like global network of friends is like incredible just because we've been out there and now we're kind of finding more, you know, nomads out there. We're not like alone doing this like we kind of were in early years. Um, so there's a real community side of it that we enjoy. And the Glenn community has been a wonderful piece of it as well. It's so uh, we've kind of have our, our niches and our, our wonderful people within them. So because like every as much as we're like, outside of the matrix, like the traditional work nine to five, save up, buy a ski house, have two kids, have a black lab, you know, get a car, Tesla in the driveway. Like we're way outside of that matrix. And so is a lot of the glamping camp owners. Like they're, they're chasing a dream. They maybe did, were lawyers or doctors or trash collectors, whatever their job was, but they've broken out of that and said, I'm going to start something. So we really resonate with that and just like, and love meeting them and telling their story and the whole comfortably wild like that whole book is predicated on amazing camp owners when you look at it you say wow these look like amazing tents camps activities but it's really the camp owners which is how we chose every property in that book because each one of them resonated with us and their guests in a certain way and you know to further define that because yes it is comfortably wild the best glamping destinations in north america but it was never about you know, the most glamorous and, you know, fabulous destinations in the sense of luxury. It was really about intention and people who were wanting to like share a piece of this world, like that they had created something so special and they were so stoked to do that. And they've just wanted to in invite people in a way that felt inclusive and exciting. And it we kind of honed in on people who were trying to like this is going to be a fast way to make money or or this is you know the cool thing to do or whatever reasons that people come up with because a lot of people did see you know it became this trendy thing but your heart had to be in the right place so that kind of we that's how we sort of made the list is like 
who was really genuine about the experiences they wanted to share. And we're doing something unique, not replicating what, what they saw on Instagram. Yeah, it's something I've definitely noticed. And, you know, there's lots of different versions of travel. There's camping, you know, which oftentimes means a pitching a tent next to a fire ring with beautiful scenery. And you can do the all-inclusive, which oftentimes means a hotel room, which I think maybe we can agree that hotel rooms generally look like other hotel rooms, maybe switch out the sheets and the bedspread, but <laughs> it's pretty, pretty common. But when glamping comes into play, each site and each glamping structure and each experience becomes very unique. And so even though it's under the same umbrella of glamping, it's really hard to specify like what exactly happened there and how does it relate to the next space? Because oftentimes it doesn't. And I think that's what makes that version of traveling so cool. And for you guys, I mean, I have to imagine you've done every single kind of travel in the book, all I've, all I've mentioned, plus some. What was it for you that made you fall in love with, with glamping as compared to every other type of travel that I'm sure you've done? I think it's the, for me, I can speak to what, what resonates with me is just the connection to nature, like how visceral it is, how in touch with the nature, the landscapes, the sounds, the wind, the smells, like you, when you're saying about the hotel room that you swap out the different bedspread or maybe a different kind of flower or a different kind of fruit that's on the end of your you know, table when you walk into the Hilton, like there, you, you, don't, you don't get that connection to nature. Like it is a white box and maybe it's got a different view and, and, and it, there are obviously some cool luxury amenities. But when you're glamping, like you're, you're connected with nature, not just in your tent, outside your tent, but you're there, you're right next to the activities you wanna do, the hiking, the fishing, the river rafting, the mountain biking, whatever, you know, the wild foraging, like you're, you're right there, you're in the activity. And there's something just, I don't know, really beautiful about being that close to nature and that these camp owners, the proprietors, want to share something really cool with you. They're not setting up a glamping camp, some of them, you know, in like an urban setting, like five rows, you know, in the middle of a city block. Like then you, then you would stay at the Holiday Inn or whatever, but they're in a beautiful setting that they love so much. They're like, I need to share this with other people. I'm gonna put up some tents and show them why this farm is cool or this mountain stream is cool or this beach is cool or whatever it is, they wanna share the nature in a, with a cool structure. So to me, that combination of cool structures out in nature is what became so addictive to me. And our first one was in 2012. And I think two months into our trip, we did a glamping camp uh, down in Patagonia. But what's it for you? Do you have something different or? Yeah, I mean, because we, uh, it wasn't as common a, a concept back then. And we were on this honeymoon. So we were trying some um, pretty fancy places, but we were also uh, trying to stretch a backpacker budget. So we had the extremes of all types of accommodations, like, you know, from sleeping in hammocks in the Amazon jungle that we like, and building shelter from palm leaves with a machete to backpacker joints to mid range to some totally fabulous, you know, five star style hotels. Cause we were writing as we went to and did a lot of like more formal hotel reviews for honeymoons.com and a few other outlets. Um, and then when we discover glamping, we're like, this is it. This is totally it. Like we are nature and adventure people, but we're on, you know, we still are on this honeymoon and, you know, it's about connecting with one another and also going on some incredible hike, but then to be not being able, being able to like actually relish in the beautiful place you are and not just be totally exhausted and have to reinvent the wheel on your shelter and your food and, and, and have a bad night's sleep. So it kind of, 
You got to savor the best parts of being in these wild places without all the like the the schlep and the hardship of it. So it just sort of was like the best of everything to us and that they were always boutique and had a, you know, usually a great story with it. And yeah, to wake up in the middle of, you know, Torres del Paine National Park in Chile and be like, oh, this is in front of us. But it wasn't like, you know, in a, in a box hotel. Like they just, a box hotel in the middle of a national park just feels like they just shouldn't be together, right? Like there's a, they should be organic and have a flow with the landscape, a mindfulness of, of where, um you know how how you're treading on the land interacting yeah, with that, the land that footprint is like also really important to us we try to use honey trek's voice to push sustainable travel and glamping just epitomizes that right it's it's most of them are not even permanent structures they're not you know or if it is it's a very small footprint it's off-grid it's composting it's using solar and like reclaiming rainwater and it's a very light structure that can be moved a lot of times so there's just a lot of beautiful things that, that leave the land better and the animals can habitate around it. It's not just a big, huge block of concrete, you know, being an eyesore also for other people who are hiking by or going through the forest. So, yeah. So there's lots of different kinds of glamping structures. Um, and knowing that you love glamping and kind of the accessibility it gives you to nature, but also the shelter that it gives you and a little bit more peace of mind on a comfort level and also maybe shelter from some of the environment or the animals that are walking around do you have uh, a favorite type of glamping structure that you stayed in and if so why it's so i mean i think they're all i mean obviously we we do have some preferences but there it's very case by case right like you could the be setting has so, plays so much into it you know you can put the you know the prettiest tent you know and then if it's lined up against a bunch of other tents you don't feel like you have that privacy i feel like a lot of the luxury in glamping is that privacy and feeling like you, this slice of the forest is yours and you can, um, that space is, is five star right there. But um, well, for a tangible example, I like to think of recent things. Um, we were just in Slovenia and it was this camp called Theodosius Glamping, Forest Glamping. They were just, it wasn't a big footprint and they were kind of up, up a hill overlooking this vineyard, but then they were in the trees and it was a mirrored cube. And so you're walking through the forest and then this like, the forest is reflecting it back at you. And it was like the trippiest thing. And then you kind of walked out onto your, um, into your terrace, which looked over the vines. And then it was um, just kind of a simple classic design. They weren't trying to like over, cutesify it or fancify it but it was just like elegant and something totally different like you would think a mirrored sounds maybe anti-nature but it was like the it was like this infinite loop of nature with the mirrors it was, it was very cool that sounds awesome i've seen pictures of some of those structures and that's that's one of the cool things i think about clapping when it comes to structures is there really are no rules yeah. and, and it's kind of being made up as we go along there's some traditional ones you'd expect like a yurt or a safari tent but now you're starting to see tiny homes become a become a big deal in glamping the, this cube i don't even know what you'd call yeah. that but that's the thing it's like and uh we had a great because for the for writing comfortably well we were like you know we're all learning about this together this is like an evolving thing and you know we interviewed you know some major players in the industry like ruben martinez and something to not to misquote you ruben but more or less like the idea is like yeah, that glamping is different. Like it, that's the whole idea. So there isn't supposed to be 
rules. It's that if it's creative, it's in contact with nature, it's comfortable. So we kind of lay out those as well. Like what is lamping? You know, just a few basic parameters, but creativity is is the best part is that it, it is totally open to the imagination as long as you are hitting those parameters of like certain levels of comfort, um, you know, respect of nature. And so we usually go with like a freestanding structure for just one couple or family. Like if it's a big 10 unit thing, that's a little bit harder to stretch into the glamping, but usually like you have your own structure. We don't care if it's a, you know, a mud, what's the ones they do, um, the Hogan, you know, it could be a Hogan, it could be a super, you know, your own like mirrored hotel or your mirrored, mirrored uh, glamping cabin in the woods. Like, yeah, yeah that's that kind of autonomy mm -hmm. and privacy that comes with it and having the space. I mean, a lot of people who are attracted to glamping come from urban areas because like we covet that, just that open air uh, and that's becoming like more and more precious. And so, yeah, that autonomy and that connection and just fresh air and space. Yeah, I agree. Fresh air space. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, you started back in 2012 and obviously something happens called the pandemic. And I would imagine that had some kind of an impact on, on what you're doing, especially because travel more or less got shut down. How are you able to keep going? How did that impact you? Uh, how did you move through that and continue to keep your business up and running and also fuel your passion? Yeah. We had quite the pandemic journey uh, and glamping became a saving grace of it. Uh, so long story short is that, you know, we were all didn't quite believe the pandemic is really happening. Come like end of February, early March, we were like, yeah, this thing is happening, but it, no one knew what a big deal it was going to be. So we, you know, went to. We got invited to speak at a, at a travel conference in Europe. So we flew on March 4th from Austin, Texas, to Germany to speak at a travel conference, which at the, when we departed the Texas, the conference was on. And when we landed in Berlin, the conference had been canceled that morning. Uh, so then we kind of pivoted. We picked up an RV. Um, we did a partnership with an RV company and said, hey, why don't we take an RV? We'll go into Eastern Europe where the COVID is not so rampant because mostly it was in Italy and Spain at the time. They said, sounds good, 10 days. Just bring it back to us, make some fun content. So we drove into Poland and seven days after we had this RV, all the borders in Europe shut and we got stuck in Poland for two entire months in this camper van, uh, relying on the kindness of strangers, living in the because woods. There were no campgrounds open. It was snowing. It's freezing. Couldn't get a hotel room. Like nobody, we couldn't even like find basic things like water, like everything had shut down. But the Polish people couldn't have been nicer. They kind of took us in. Different farmers would invite us to park on their field and bring out pierogies for us and quince vodka. We one were, it wasn't as semi-strategic. We're like, oh, this because there's apps for everything. That's the world. That's the thing. The world is so interconnected anymore that, I mean, we lived and died by this app called Park for Night. And it was basically kind of would pinpoint people were friendly to, you know, hosting campers and, and whatnot were like this vineyard you know let's see if they pick up their phone it was this fabulous place and he was like still somehow open like the first thing he kind of open. opened for us yeah he did this whole tasting we're like i'm even allowed to talk to you right now this seems like out of you know magic and then he's like don't stay in your camper it's freezing out like take the no one's staying here for months god knows and he just like gave us this vineyard apartment and we're cooking dinners together and we're trying all the bottles with the bad labels because he was like oh, i can't even smell 
And so it turned into this wonderful journey of like kindness to strangers, taking risks. Also, like we were going to cities, so we saw every possible like mountain lake back road, the depths of Poland ten times over because it's not that big a place, and um, we had time to kill. So if anybody wants to read that blog, if you go to honeytrek.com and just type in Poland in the search box, you'll find this camper journey, you'll see the route. It's a bunch of squiggly lines. We drove something like 3,000 miles around Poland and it's the size of New Mexico. Yeah. So that was, the, that was the beginning of the pandemic. Then we got a call from Yala. You know Yala Tents? Um, Luxury. Yeah, they used to be called Luxatenten. And, and we, we had been chatting with them a little bit because they saw our book and we met them at the glamping show in Denver. And they said, hey guys, like we're rebranding. We're gonna relaunch. We need photos of our tents. We see what you guys are doing. We see all your followers. Like, can you come to the Netherlands and we'll give you a van. You can take whatever props you want and drive around to all the camps in the Netherlands. Because once you're in the Netherlands, it was pretty open. It was pretty can free I to travel. correct this story just slightly? Because yeah. that is I wasn't going to tell how, about the whole seven countries. Well, that was the thing. It was really exciting. Because this is what I think might be an example for other people, too, who are especially in the tent manufacturer space, okay. is once you sell your tents your structures they're out there in the world and they're not yours anymore so you can't really check up on them like what did they do with this fabulous product you made like how how did they style it where did they place it like what's the use case for it and so they and have photos that kit, we can and use then in marketing they can't you know say hey guest do you mind if i take photos of you like it's kind of like once you sell it it's gone so they pinpointed some of their best tents around europe like Croatia, Spain, Austria, like it was going to be this whole big tour and we were going to do this, um, you know, because I have a background also in styling for magazines and he's a photographer and then, you know, models for whatever worth, it, you know, do it, do it all for them, do a soup to nuts um, photography shoot and social media storytelling thing for them. So the pandemics, they're like, can you guys, they're like, all the borders are closed, but they're like, we still want it to happen. If you can get to the Netherlands on Tuesday, we're still, we're still game. We, we're going to reap during this whole thing, we're going to do it all in the Netherlands. We like had to sneak over two country borders to get there, pretend I was Dutch to even get on the plane, and then ultimately did this fantastic thing to make their brand launch on time for um, to the Luxatent to Yala. Yeah. And it was quite the experience. And then, not to keep going here, but that was such a wonderful lesson for glamping is that in the Netherlands, the glamping camps were allowed to be open. But the because hotels were not sharing a buffet, an elevator, like everybody who was in nature, freestanding units. So they would they let them operate. If they had their own bathroom, they were like self-contained and responsible forms of uh, recreation. So it was such a boon for glamping because when everyone else was like bleeding money at the the big chain hotels, glamping could continue because they were safer protocols and and concepts of recreation. Well, it's, it's a great story to, and, and it's heartwarming for me to hear that everyone was so receptive and uh, over there. And, and it's always great you know, hear so many terrible stories. Obviously, a lot of terrible things happened in the pandemic, but it's very refreshing to hear the opposite side when, when people are just extending a helping hand. And, and it's great to see that you guys were able to pivot and, and you stayed true to your passion. It's this is what we want to do. There's a way to do it. We just have to think about it. Um, and you mentioned the RV and, uh, I think you have been living in an RV for quite some time. I don't, have you clocked how many miles that you've put on total? Yeah, we've put a, just over a hundred thousand miles on buddy. Um, and he's less of a house and he's more of a buddy. 
Um, he's more of like an, our adventure vehicle when we're in the States. So we're in, buddy, maybe like a month or two at a time, then we'll go abroad for a project, you know, maybe go to Ecuador, come back, be in him for a month or two, you know, go to Europe for a trade show. So he's kind of like our little home whenever we're in the States and we'll swap out clothes. And um, but so buddy's been great. And we actually bought this camper which is a 1985 Toyota Raider, So nobody needs to be too jealous that we're living in the lap of luxury, but he has a lot of fun. And we bought him to write Comfortably Wild because we didn't want to just like ask people, hey, can you send me some marketing photos and let's jump on a Zoom and tell me about your camp. We were like, oh no, we want to come meet you in person, interview you, stay there for two or three days, try your food, try your activities, and then hop in our camper, drive 600 miles to Oregon to the next camp and then drive to British Columbia. So most of those miles were actually writing the book because we wanted to visit these camps in person. So it was that was like a wild two years yeah. driving all around nine countries. We uh, we visited some by planes, but three of those uh, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. was all by camper van. Yeah, so. driving as far from like the Arctic Circle to the tip of Baja, Mexico to Florida, to and we so yeah, it's been about over about a hundred thousand miles, and and yeah, it's sort of like mixing up our adventures. Like we're just as happy to be you know, on our little camper as we are glamping, as we are in, you know, in a house sit, it's, I think that variety is a spice of life adage is totally true. I mean, it's that, oh, our people say, oh, aren't you sick of traveling? We're like, changes all the time. And we also, not just the place, but the style. So when we kind of go too hard into one thing, we say, you know what, let's like take a moment and go a little slower. Let's just, you know, be in nature for a little bit and hang in, in some beautiful forest or let's like have a little bit more structure and with four walls and a good wi-fi connection and a dog to to throw a ball for like that's that's fun too because it's it's always new when you're when you can and the other thing that like travel kind of teaches you is that you're not always in control right like in your own life when you know you've got your work schedule and you know what time you're picking up dinner or picking up the kids or you know, what time you're, you know, waking up, your alarm goes off, you go to the gym, like you're in control mostly of your schedule. Maybe your boss has a little opinion on it, but you've got your hours at work. But when you're traveling, like you're at other people's whims, right? The bus breaks down or your hotel, your flight gets canceled or, you know, a big weather system comes and you can't make it to that island. Like, so you learn to be a little bit more flexible and malleable and you learn to find the good in almost any situation because one, you're just super pumped to be in the Galapagos or to be in France. And like you you kind of, it humbles you a little bit in a good way. So I'd say like we've become more humble and more, and we can do this as long as we have because we're able to kind of ebb and flow and like find the good, even in the crappiest situation. Like we'll laugh about something silly or find something beautiful in a place that other people might be like, wow, why would you ever come here as a tourist? But like you can find that that little, cute shop or the cute person there that you connect with and that's enough to make a whole city worthwhile for us um so being yeah being humble and adaptable i think is a good skill that you don't have to have going into it because some people say well i could never do it because i can't travel with my partner or whatever you learn these things on the road right we didn't start off like we are now or as adaptable and malleable as we were we went in with a pretty set idea but then you just learn to kind of go with the flow of the river and that's been been pretty fun yeah, and I think I would actually expand on that, at least in my opinion. And I, I don't think you're really ever in control. I think you can have an idea of where you want to go, what you want to be, what you want to have happen. But in any instance, whether you're at your job or you think it's all under the control, it's really not. And and I think 
what we learned through the pandemic is we needed to be humbled a little bit. We needed to, to gut check ourselves. We needed to ask ourselves what's really important. Um, because I think a lot of people realize some of the things they thought were important actually weren't. Um, speaking of post pandemic mm -hmm. now, made it through, have you noticed uh, changes in, in travel? I would say uh, an observation, because we've since, I mean, when was the end of the pandemic, it's all pretty amorphous, but say in the last year, we've been to uh, Bhutan, India, Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, Slovenia, uh, now, now Germany, Slovakia. We've been we've been a good amount of, and then also a lot of the the U.S. And it's interesting that we went to say Dubrovna, Croatia, and we're like, oh my goodness, this place is slammed. Like I don't know what they were like pre-pandemic, but it seemed over the top crowded to me. And then say we went to a place called Chesky Krumlov, which is was on you know, the past couple decades has been the second most popular destination to Prague for the Czech Republic. They are like, where is everybody? Are you gonna, when are they gonna come back? So I feel like people are playing it really safe with the destinations that they know are gonna like, they're just that, you know, blue chip kind of destination and everyone's returning to what is safe and secure and they've definitely heard about. But meanwhile, there's a lot of opportunity in these second tier areas because they one need the tourism because they are not coming back as quickly and there's also so much joy in traveling where you aren't like tripping on a bunch of tourists so um i feel like be a little more creative in your travel choices you know because everyone's do following this same track because they i don't know they just think it's safer or something but meanwhile there's just a lot more opportunity and need travel does you know, employ a lot of people around the world and um, that these areas are having trouble recovering these these second tier cities and destinations. And then on the, to answer your other question about the glamping industry and like what we've seen change in that since the pandemic, I think it's great. The the upside is there's a lot more glamping properties from small to big. Like it's way more popular because people didn't want to be sharing the buffet spoon and they wanted that reconnection with nature. Also, a lot of people moved home, home being maybe the childhood farm where they grew up or out of the cities and they went back and maybe they made a life choice and said, hey, okay, cool, that was a great 10 years in New York or 20 years in LA or Miami. Now I'm back home, maybe my parents are ailing, I've got this property, let me throw a few tents on there and I see other people charging $300 a night for a tent in the woods. I could charge 200, put 10 tents up and make $2,000 a night. And I think it seems, and obviously like there's a big industry around it. So people want to be like, cool, like here's a blog, like how to build a glamping camp in a week, you know, and you could be up. And, and I think a lot of people are in it without the hospitality understanding, without the, the understanding that you need to do something more than put up a prospector tent or an inflatable bubble under the stars. You need to do more than that to be successful because just doing that, like you're gonna, you're not gonna have the guests, you're not gonna have the midweek booking. So it's, I think there's a lot of people that maybe, I don't know, I'm not trying to like push our own like course, but like when we work with a lot of these camps and people who are in the ideation phase and saying, should I do this? We have some clients where we're like, no, you probably shouldn't. Like, you know, well, let's talk the reality. Let's talk about the, the pain points that you don't see. When you just look on Airbnb and you see the booking night and you see beautiful photos, and you're like, wow, they just sit home and, and all I have to do is clean a 10 by 10 tent and these people are coming in and they'll give me $500 a weekend. It looks easy, but 
there's a lot of pain. There's also a lot of joy that they don't know that is going to come from it because it's not just monetary. As Anne said earlier, it's not just the money coming in and cool. I've got my, you know, my mom's farm and I can put a few tents and like people will just come and, and leave. Like there's a lot of beauty of hosting these guests that they also don't know about. So there's a lot of pros and cons that people don't know. And sometimes uh, if they know those things in advance, they can make a better product. They can be more informed. So um, yeah, I think that's one thing in the industry. I think it's still because as Glenn becomes more and more saturated, people have the idea to put a tent out in the woods. It's um, it's got to be about creative experiences, unique experiences, ways people to connect with nature, with the people they love, with um, try, you know this excitement of trying new things. It can't just be you know a different kind of VRBO or you know a different kind of vacation rental. It's it's got to have substance to it because. You know, and glamping kind of became a meme of itself, like in earlier days of like, oh, what a funny word. You made up this word glamping and it was kind of like mocked for a little bit. We're like, no, if you create, let me tell you, like if you create meaningful experiences that connect people with nature and the people they care about, everyone will love this. This is not a trend. This is like what we crave as humans. So if we can offer something um, not just beautiful, but meaningful and memorable, like that will never die as a trend. I agree wholeheartedly. And I also think it's it's fun and I've done all kinds of different clamping and I, I think it's fun to be able to go on top of a mountain and stay in a yurt and not see anybody or hear anything and just be at peace. And I also feel like it's great to have experiences tied to that property on a more expansive level, especially when you're talking about families because kids, you know, they need to be <laughs> entertained in some way. And for, for the parents to enjoy their time, they want to make sure there's activities and things pretty easily accessible for the kids to do. If you're traveling into a new location, you know, it's, it's helpful to not have to do all the research about what are all the activities I'm going to have to book outside of where I'm staying. So uh, properties that offer experiences on site, I think definitely help in that respect. And for you guys, I mean, again, having done so much, what are some of your favorite experiences that you've done uh, while you've been glamping and, and why were they your favorite? Um, I, so I, I use the example of Ranch Rock Creek comes to mind because I feel like, and they're, they're all very high end glamping, I'll admit that, but it wasn't about the fanciness, it was about the creativity of how they presented to sort of the day's adventures where it would be something as simple as like, you know, if you're going to eat three meals a day, I mean, who's to say it has to be at a table? Like, who, you know, why don't we make every, you know, take everything as an opportunity for adventure? And, you know, breakfast today is if you feel up to it, we're like, you know, going to snowshoe out to this remote area and do a bonfire and get the Dutch oven cookout going, you know, or maybe they were horseback riding, we're taking out the carriages and we're, you know, going to, so it's just kind of like, it was an element of surprise. It wasn't like, you know, meals are served in the dining room between 11 and 12. It was like, well, today is a new day and that means a new adventure. And it was like this element of surprise that made like what would just be eating barbecue something like unforgettable. So I think um, meal food is such a big part of travel a lot of times and glamping a lot of times these places don't have traditional kitchens, but hey, think unconventionally and how can you use that to your advantage to be doing these like you know, totally out of the box picnics or cookouts and that kind of thing where you don't need infrastructure. Um, people have kitchens at home. They don't need, you know, people have restaurants in their hometown. Like what could you offer that's out of the norm? So you, you can, you can play into that in a, in a, to your bed. Mm -hmm. 
one fun one, um, which is kind of an activity, but it's also just one of our favorite ways to go glamping is when there's, uh, like we call it glamping motion, like you're glamping between destinations. Um, there's a neat one up called Main Hudson Trail, where you take either a fat bike, cross country skis, you can hike, you can canoe between some of their glamping locations. So I just, I love that idea of, of kind of being in motion. Another one we did was called Teton. Well, actually, I want to yeah. play on that too because I just ran from Rancho Creek, which is like also like super five star. But then in Maine Huts, they made it feel luxurious, even though the actual accommodations were pretty basic. It was the idea that our, you know, our luggage was one step ahead of us. So it wasn't like trekking with my bags. It was magically there along with a hot meal a craft beer that they had like made in their name with a local brewer and you know homemade banana bread and that kind of thing so like that was the luxury was in, is is always for me the luxury is in the details and the thoughtfulness so even though like that place was $70 a night and rent was like 2000 they both felt like i was well taken care of and that that is luxury I, I love the point you just made about it's not so much the price you're paying, but the experience that, that has been crafted for you. And then on the same side, from the business perspective, obviously, people are always trying to figure out ways where they can increase revenue. Um, what are some of the pieces of advice that you could offer to, to someone that's maybe started a glamp site and they're trying to get to the next phase to say, well, what could I bring into the fold that maybe would allow me to increase my my booking price one thing that we recommend to clients when they especially when they're smaller uh and you know we don't always recommend expanding your team because that comes with other headaches and salaries and health insurance and things but one way to expand your revenue source without expanding your manpower and not and a lot of times not even the amount of effort you need to put into it is teaming up with local operators who can expand your offering and you can almost fold that in as if it's something that you guys offer like horseback rides or massages or in-room catered wine dinners but you have a local hotel and you find out what they charge okay is it going to be a hundred dollars for a dinner for two with a bottle of wine that you deliver cool we'll charge 150. we take 50 off the top a local restaurant that can provide that or the horseback rides okay cool is it 50 a person for a two-hour ride we charge 75. it's in the booking and especially when it's during the booking thing and you can have it as an add-on in your booking system and then that okay cool somebody reserved a horseback ride for 6 p.m on you know tuesday sunset it just gets forwarded right along or maybe somebody on your team forwards it to them and um so there might be a little bit of coordination but teaming up with local operators is not only a good way to get revenue but it's also just a good way to get your name out there because for every five people a week or one person a week you send to that horseback riding guy He's got a hundred guests a week who are saying, oh, like, where, where should we stay? Do you know any cool place that's like kind of a unique like treehouse or that, that has like a, something in nature? And he's like, oh, funny enough, this, you know, this couple sends me guests. So, yeah, you should go check out XYZ glamping down the road. And then maybe they're not booking that trip. But next time they come back. So it's a great way to build future bookings, revenue. And also you can't say enough for goodwill in the community because as much, you're gonna have a lot of guests coming through. You want everybody who's voting on the local town board or going to these meetings or meeting up at Cracker Barrel to discuss like the, the politics of town. You wanna to be on their good side and sending business around is a really good way to get, um, to be on the right side of the community 
um, holistically and just, you know, when you need things done. Um, yeah, because I feel like glamping usually are in remote areas and sometimes your neighbors are going to think you're crazy because you're the like, what's this thing coming up down the road? Like, Gina, what is that? And uh, it, it's, um, you, you need to endear people to you and get them on board with your, you know, with your idea and be and rally around you. Because, yeah, your community, if you are remote, like, you might be each other's volunteer fire department. Like, you need to be looking out for each other. And I think a good way to do that, too, is, you know, incorporating maybe once a month there is some kind of, like, you know, thing that's open to the public where you get a band and you, you know, buy s'mores or get a food truck or something that kind of invites people. Because that's also word of mouth. Um, when their family and friends come to stay in town and they don't want them staying in their house, they, they stay at your place instead. And and so it, it kind of, it's making the the circle of, of, of love go round. Um, and I mean, one example of like being uh, helpful to your community too, like, Funny enough, like we have a, a glamping consulting client, um, Mark from Honey Light Glamping, and the town is so stoked for him to open his place because they're remote and he's on, he's got a camp store and they used to have to go like 30 minutes to get milk. And now they're going to go to Mark's store and they're like in full support. So if you can think of ways that it can be wins for your neighbors um that's that's gonna do not just business but yeah that holistic community and i'll give another tip uh with directly with regards to revenue which will sound counter to many people but you should earn try and earn not try and earn but earn less revenue than you think your camp is worth in the beginning because if you can charge a lower price point you are going to get a lot more guests through the door they're gonna have a better time if they're spending 125 bucks a night than if they're spending 250 a night. And they start scrutinizing every little thing. Every little thing. So they're gonna leave better reviews. They're gonna do a lot more value. value. They're gonna feel more value. You're gonna fill the midweek room nights. You're gonna get reviews on Google, reviews on TripAdvisor, reviews on Airbnb, whatever booking platform you're using. Those reviews are what is gonna propel your two, three, four, five of your business. So don't try and squeeze your people. And if you're saying, hey, like I'm only booked on Friday and Saturday nights and I get an occasional midweek booking, lower your midweek price by 50%. Fill those midweek rooms because those people will eventually become weekend rooms. They'll tell their friends, make sure they're tagging on social, but get butts in seats because not only is it more reviews, more social, but you're going to learn because every guest is there. Oh, what do you think? What could we do better? You know, tell me things. Every guest and you'll just constantly iterate much better than just having 50 guests on a weekend for the whole year, get them in midweek, lower your price. So that might seem counter to people like, oh, what's the most I can charge? Airbnb says I can charge this, but if you're not filling rooms, drop it down and, and get that cycle going and, and iterate and learn and get reviews and get social. I think that advice is gold. <clears throat> it really is. But I think that's super helpful. And obviously, you know, people can go to your website and I think, you know, hopefully engage with you and, and get these consulting services because there's a lot of people that have this idea of starting a glamping operation. I think it's really important that they do it in the right way and then provide a good experience to their guests because as you said earlier, you know, people talk. And I think what everyone wants is just for the glamping industry as a whole to feel good, feel safe, because it is new. It's it's, it's such an, it's in its infant stage right now that we have to be really careful with it. One more thing on prices, it's like it's funny because people, you know, with our immediate friend circle, people ask us about glamping. Oh, but it's so expensive. And it's, it's, it's like some people who have really hit it out of the park and, you know, some of like the 
the more famous camps, their prices went up and up. And then people look to the most famous camps as an example, but it's kind of, you know, hurting everybody else because you need to, yeah, you have to still always be adding value. And then, you know, people have a bad taste in their mouth about Glenn because it wasn't, they shelled out all this money and it didn't deliver. So you have to deliver on what you're on the price. You know, you can charge, you know, an exorbitant amounts, but like, value it's not you can't charge for novelty of glamping you have to charge for quality service and a unique experience and price accordingly because yeah people will be happy sometimes with simple things but they don't want to feel like they paid for a lot and it was simple or you know like manage expectations with your pricing and what you say you're going to deliver yeah i i wholeheartedly agree and again you know i, I guess it goes into the strategy of where you are in, in your phase what you're trying to accomplish there, being really smart about it. And and Mike, you're right. I mean, getting feedback is crucial because we can have this idea of what we think we're providing, but you know, the the, the truth will be in what is said back from the guest. And I think from there, then you start to make your pivots and just have that long that long-term plan in place, but know that you need to pivot whenever necessary to continue to keep growing. And whatever you end up growing into is what you end up growing into. And it just goes all the way back to what we said at the beginning. It's like, you can have this plan, but you got to be able to roll it. Well, uh, guys, you've been everywhere around the world. Uh, where haven't you been and and where would you be most excited to see that you haven't experienced yet? Well, the world is a very large place. Um, and we are still hungry for more of it. Um, we've long been trying to get to central Asia. So, it's on the list forever. So like Georgia, Armenia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Pakistan. Have we might have that That's a little farther over. But yeah, I mean, uh, so Central Asia still intrigues us greatly. It's been fascinating to be in this far east and eastern Europe too, because then like cultures really start to blend. Like we're in Bulgaria for the past two weeks, but really they were Ottoman for like 500 years. So like that is such an interesting mashup right there. And then, you know, we were going over the border and like we were, you know, they're in, uh, everything's in Cyrillic and then we come to Romania and I'm thinking like my head's so far in Eastern Europe I'm like it's like a romance language and like it sounds like Italian like it's amazing like, have, we're still always on our toes that's amazing 11 years there, I'm still always on my toes traveling um but yes yeah, so I would say a fun one that we have been to that I would recommend everyone going to but we haven't glamped there it's the only continent that we've not glamped on is Antarctica so uh We've been there. I mean, it's an amazing place. Everybody should visit it, especially if you love amazing nature and ice and animals and wildlife. Yeah, most, most respect because it's a fragile place. A hundred percent. But yeah, I hear there's a few companies that are working on little glamping experiences, like an overnight on the actual continent of Antarctica. So that would be pretty cool. That's pretty high on my list. Oh, we also haven't been back to Africa in a long time. So we're really excited. We have a lot of fun things brewing for fall in Africa with a few glamping operators because it's that sort of like what glamping the whole chapter of the history of glamping so this is safari is not the history of glamping but it did kind of take hold with the african safari in the public imagination so um it's and also that that we love in the camps we're talking specifically glamping does have a place in conservation and it's really exciting when that happens um so we'll give them a shout out actually mantis they uh you know their their founder's story is that like they had this land that historically had the big five on it and it just became this like Farming. this farmland that was like devoid of nutrients and all obviously all the animals left and he's like there is a way 
if they were here once, what could we do to bring it back to a place where it would be their natural habitat again? And, you know, it takes 20 years sometimes, but um, that's pretty impressive if you can come full circle. So I feel like, especially like we are as, you know, glamping in the glamping industry and glamping owners, you're custodians of this land and like, how, what could you be doing to make it better? And, you know, thinking about that from the actual like flora and fauna of the place and also incorporating community and, so he's got a lot of like local training programs for hospitality as well as, you know, just conservation and awareness. And that's really neat. So we're trying to surface more destinations like that, because I think you travel can be a force for good. And, um, you know, that's, that's where glamping can really shine in our eyes. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree that. And glamping can be this new lens that people start to view what they've seen probably many times over, but they're just now looking at it through a different lens, seeing it in a different way, seeing what the possibilities could be. And the beauty of what most glamp site owners offer is the chance to learn that culture, to, to really dive into it. Whereas, you know, a lot of other vacation places are kind of a place to check out. I like to look at glamping as a place to check in for your mind, yeah. especially. So I really applaud what you guys are doing. And uh, if everyone wants to follow you, you can, they can do so on your blog and, and travel, follow along in your travel adventures. So that's always exciting. I'll, I'll always be checking in and, and following those things. Uh, where are you off to next? We are, yeah, we're going to do a little overland trip through Europe. We're speaking at a conference down in Greece. So uh, we might do a little glamping consulting. I and maybe Montenegro. I said Serbia before, which but we're so sad we can't make it to the Eco Resort Network, which is happening in Montenegro, and it is going to be undoubtedly a fantastic event. It's the same people that put on uh, the glamping show and mm -hmm. run the Glamping Business Americas and Glamping Business International. So no doubt, it'll be fantastic. Wish we could be there. You guys should certainly check it out um, in mid. Mid to late May. Mid to late May. Micro, yeah. And then for people, if you want to connect up with us, we're just at Honey Trek, Honey like H O N E Y, Trek T R E K, like a long walk around the world. Just message us on any platform TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you want, or our website. If you want to pick up a copy of Comfortably Wild, that would mean the world to us. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Books a Million, wherever, wherever you get your books. Just we can also do sign copies and sign copies for your camp. Thank you for lovely guest reading in the rooms and the court. If you do have a glamping camp, yeah, we'll send you we'll send you a box of 20 of them. Just email us and we'll give you the wholesale uh, hookup and we'll sign them for you as well. Any camps that want to talk about uh, consulting, uh, just go to honeytrack.com slash glamping and you can see everything we offer for camps. We'd love to chat with you or just have a little quick call and uh, consultation on the phone. but. Yeah, we're just excited for where this industry is going. Honored to be a part of it. Um, and yeah, we'll see you guys in the woods. Yeah, well, I've read the book Comfortably Wild and it's fantastic. So for people that haven't read it, they should definitely check it out. And next time I see you guys, I'm going to just have the book with me and you're going to give me the autograph. Sounds great. Cheers, Bobby. Thank Thanks again. Thanks again for joining us on this episode. And I hope you enjoyed hearing the conversation I had with Mike and Ann as much as I had having it. They're super busy traveling all over the world. As you heard, they're writing and publishing books. They're offering consulting services. And if you'd like to speak with them about any of those things, you can do so on their website, which is www.honeytrek.com. That is again, www.honeytrek.com. And if you'd like to follow us, you can do so on our website, which is www.glamptuary.com. That is www.glamptuary.com.
Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you down the trail.